You are listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. With Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Welcome to episode 27 of Sounds Like Science. Where have we been, Simon? Oh, well, it's the start of the academic term here in the UK. <laughs> and so that has, we've been sucked into the, the black hole of academia. I, we're actually through to Imperial College onto week four already, which is uh, yeah, quite yeah. alarming. We're, so, in week, yeah. we're in week six, um, which is the Wednesday of the term. <laughs> everything's everything's uh, <laughs> heading towards the end of term from now. But yes, it's... Uh, Certainly been a, a hectic ride the last few weeks. Yeah, but uh, we're back. We're back. Lots of science has gone on. Lots of interesting and slightly frightening things have gone on, which we will get on to, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Are we going to start with the miserable story? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hoping to save it. You know me. I like to finish on them. <laughs> just to, uh, On the doom stories. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can, I suppose. So, obviously, we both have an interest in climate change and there was uh, the recent studies about CO2 levels in the um, well it's always bad news unfortunately with CO2 levels they've uh, hit their highest levels for three million years it's now 403 parts per million uh, concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere why uh, and, and the problem is is actually it's accelerating so even though our actual amount of CO2 that we're emitting is starting to decrease. All these things, you know, like with the Paris Accords, actually mm. we're doing very well, even with America's pullout. You know, we're actually on, looking like we're going to make those. Levels are still going up, which is frightening. And it looks like there's been issues with the uh, environment. So CO2 hasn't been absorbed at the uh, at rates which, which we hoped it would be. Mm. And so, unfortunately, we're seeing an increase in the atmosphere, even though our emissions are decreasing. So it is alarming. It, On one scale, though, it's quite good. Because, well, from a science point of view, it's interesting because we're actually seeing how the environment actually works and how it absorbs CO2 and different environmental fluctuations can affect this. So it's interesting. But it's kind of, as always, it's an experiment that we don't really wish to be taking part in, which is, uh, yeah, unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this year's this year's increase. It's, so it's fifty percent higher than the average increase in the last ten years. But we do have an El Nino weather event yes. going on this year too. So um, it's you know time will tell how much that has actually contributed to this. But it is the highest CO2 level seen in the last eight hundred thousand years. That's just so which is quite something. I was uh, talking to a chap. I was took my son to the playground. And somehow got talking to another chap about climate change, and I think I ended up depressing him as he wandered off afterwards. So it just seems to be my my role is to upset people and put a downer on it. But um, hopefully, hopefully things at least, as I say, human beings seem to have got our emissions under control, have started to um, get it under control. It's just a shame that, uh, unfortunately, as, as people have warned. That just because we're getting our emissions under control, that these environmental factors are somewhat out of our control. Yeah, I mean, and, there's, there's and so, that's so many things factor. that are also sort of non-linear, like the the, the the methane stored below the permafrost. So if the, yes. you get to a point where the permafrost starts melting, then that has a big release of additional greenhouse gases. And and it appears apparently that 
you know, we were modeling modeling our, our sea level and sea temperatures on uh, what we thought the ocean temperatures were hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago. And it looks like actually ocean temperatures were slightly warmer um, <coughs> all those, you know, millions of years ago. And that throws the models out of kilter, actually, yeah. because, yeah. you know, it is it's kind of... I don't think it's all doom and gloom, and I think we will, you know, human beings are very resourceful, we will get through it. The problem is, is with all things, it's how you get through things, and I'd rather go through things nicely than, <laughs> uh, than kind of, well, I think Shell did a, uh, a study of this, actually, about 20 years ago, and they've got one where there's a nice transition, and there's one called Scramble, and the Scramble plan isn't very nice. But apparently at the end of it, in 100 years, we're pretty much in the same place. But um, as with all things, it's kind of nice to take the easy route. You want to travel in first class rather than in standard. <laughs> it's funny you should mention <laughs> the, uh, the, the Shell study, because I was thinking it's a bit like stopping an oil tank of this, because there's so much momentum. We've got, yes. Once you've got the heat in the oceans, that's a, that's a, that's a, a store of, of that temperature. And, and uh, you know, it takes water a long time to cool down. And, and so that's... That's going to be contributing to the, uh, the sort of the environment that we're seeing. I mean, the, the, the BBC quotes uh, Dr. Oksana Tarasova, who's the chief of the World Meteorological Organization's Global Atmosphere Watch program, and um, it, I, I thought it was the UK that did uh, um, sort of understated uh, uh, comments. But her quote is: uh, "The changes uh, will not take ten thousand years like they used to take before. They will happen fast." We don't have the knowledge of the system in this state. It is a bit worrisome. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, there we go. That we could, it's, it's a bit worrisome, but it, yes, it's, it's happening well, faster than we're expecting. Let's well, just, I was... Yeah, go well, on. Sorry, Chris. No, I always think it's a bit like in the UK. So trying to get into work, there's been problems with leaves on the line. So our trains stop working when we have autumn. And leaves fall off the trees, which happens every year. So I was thinking, you know, if we if if our infrastructure in the UK is struggling with autumn, which it seems to, I don't know how it's going to change, how it's going to adapt to rapid kind well, of changes, which we've never seen before. All that will happen is we won't have an autumn. It'll be so warm, the trees will keep their leaves all year round. So, yeah, my my train into work the other morning, the, it was late, and the excuse was it was late due to previous delays. So. Basically, that's an admission that the system isn't working in its entirety, I think. So, we shall see, we shall see. As I was told I should have bought a top of a hill, and it is true. Because, uh, yeah, you should work, live at the top of a hill, work at the bottom, yeah. is the rule I've been told. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I didn't follow that through. But uh, we shall see. But I think we will adapt, you know, we will get through this. It's just in what state, I think, will be the issue. But, um, yeah, hopefully we can, <coughs> we can uh, yeah... Be okay. Well, we're talking about um, global catastrophes. There's been an update, <laughs> an update on the death of the dinosaurs. We've reported on this several times, which is the the drilling into the the the, um, the, the ring of peak course, of the particular yes. uh, crater in uh, New Mexico. But uh, now, there's an article again on the BBC website. Scientists say they now have a much clearer picture of the climate catastrophe that followed the asteroid impact of the Earth 66 million years ago. Um, the impact of this asteroid hit with the energy equivalent of 10 billion Hiroshima bombs. Um, and it's to blame for the demise of three quarters of plant and animal species, including the dinosaurs. Um, 
They, this new suggest, the research suggests that the impact threw more than 300 billion tonnes of sulphur into the atmosphere, and this would have dropped temperatures globally below freezing for several years. Um, ocean temperatures could have been affected for centuries. The abrupt change explained why so many species struggled to survive. We always thought there was a global winter, but with this new tighter constraint, we could be much more sure about what happened. That's a quote from Professor Joanna Morgan from Imperial College. That oh, I'm, wow. I'm, I'm picking up your institution. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ch- check it out. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think the last time we reported this, it was that the, 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 the asteroid hit in the worst possible place mm. to, to actually uh, get through to all the, these sort of rocks that would, would uh, generate uh, the, the, the sort of climate impacts that they were seeing. But they now have got much cons- tighter constraints on actually what happened. So... Uh, so it seems that this drilling project has been a, a really great success. It's, it's really helped to uh, to pin down some of the uh, variables that we need to understand in order to, to explain what happened as a result of that event. But it, it just goes to show how you know sensitive, well, obviously, a however many thousands or millions of times stronger than a Hiroshima-type bomb, but... You know, um, <clears throat> It, it's the sulphur in the atmosphere. It's mm. amazing. It, it wasn't just that. It was just that it was just the pollutants in the atmosphere that made the big difference. Mm. If that makes sense, it just goes to show how sensitive we are, or the atmosphere can be. Um, so yeah. Well, they're talking about that's potentially one way we could keep global temperatures <laughs> under control is by pumping pollutants into the atmosphere, <laughs> which well, which reflects the sunlight away and restore the radiative balance, but. You're in a, a you, you never quite know how the complex system that is the Earth will it's, respond to something like that. I've heard that before. I heard yeah. the, the UK government saying about that, uh, God, ten years ago or maybe less, talking about these and talking about you know um, geoengineering, so talking mm. about algae blooms in the uh, in in the part, certain parts of the ocean to oh. absorb CO two and stuff like that. But these things, as you say, you just never know. You know, it sounds like a good idea, that in itself. But then what does that, you know, what is the, the consequences yes, of that? Yes. What's the knock-on effect? I think, you know, these things are, you know, very dangerous when you start saying, well, all we have to do, and then you suddenly realise, well, actually, it's had the, a, cat- a catastrophic impact in this area and stuff like that. I think it's best just to leave stuff alone <laughs> sometimes. And as bad as it is with climate change, I think we just have to deal with that problem in a way of we know what's happening, well, to a degree, it's getting warmer, and deal with it rather than start kind of try, yeah, geoengineer, pumping sulfur in. So what does that do to air quality, you know, when we've got diesel cars? Well, yes, you know, it, well, you, you stick and, it in the stratosphere, but then who knows <laughs> what's going to happen with that? Oh. It's uh, tricky, tricky, but I, I don't think personally, from my point of view, I don't think that is the way forward. But uh, yeah, we shall see. We shall see. Algae blooms, though, sounds like a really good uh, sort of comic book character. <laughs> well, we get it. Obviously, I around the rivers where I have, we've had a lot of problems because there's a lot of farmers, and you get it, and it's just killing off the uh, rivers because it's just you know obviously you can't it, it deoxygenizes or well, I can't think of this, the the correct word, but it takes the oxygen out of the water, and the ocean these uh, rivers basically die. So why you'd want to do that in an ocean? It, it, it is kind of frightening to me, but um, now I'm trying to think. I'm thinking back to my O level in biology. Is that eutrophication? It is. It is. Oh. Yes, I, I used to have to teach this, <laughs> but <laughs> so, um, but it, 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 you know, it's, it's trouble how bad it is. Mm. So uh, yeah, I don't think that's the way forward. But well, um, I think I think the thing about the global warming problem or the or the issue is that 
it's a it's a contained system. So if you have a local pollutant um, mm. problem like that with a river, you can help. You know, you can you can yeah. put, mitigate into place that that stops the going into the river and then the river can get better. But it tends to have, as you say, knock on effects elsewhere. So you could, for example, protect a coastline by putting um, sort of uh, defences in, but those might stop vital sediments reaching a bit of the coast further mm. down. And so it could enhance erosion further down the coast. Whereas, you know, so so you might improve one bit, but you'll at the detriment <laughs> of another. And that might be fine. You can balance that out. But when you've only got one system, the Earth is yeah. a contained system. By, well, it's not contained. As a space scientist, we would argue that the space influences it. But, <laughs> you know, the things that we can influence are, are um, in a contained system. And so, yes, it's a it's a it's a it's a knotty problem for sure. I don't think it's uh, personally. I don't think it's the way forward. But people are talking about it. But um, yeah, I think it's when you just keep this like giving human beings a drug to solve a symptom, and then you know like opiates and stuff like that, and then you get addicted to that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it, it's just a runaway. Sometimes you you have to deal with the cause effect rather than trying to. Oh, anyway, well, I think we're getting. Uh, but, I, I will but, try but, and shift onto. But wait, a... this is a good segue into the next story I want to talk about. <laughs> Thank God you've got a way out. (laughs) So archaeologists have been uh, looking at uh, the spread of leprosy in Europe. (laughs) And they think that uh, red squirrels, which were traded by Vikings, could have brought leprosy to medieval England. Really? Um, Wow. (laughs) So... So there's another thing. You bring squirrels. They've got meat meat and fur, and and you can use that for uh, your... um, you know, for trading, but if those squirrels, uh, uh, squirrel, you know, is, carries the diseases, it's a mammal, um, and some of those diseases can can skip species, as we see with sort of flu epidemics. You can have a slight my, a mutation in the in the flu strain, and it goes from birds to people. But anyway, research has revealed this is from again the BBC website that a pre-Norman skull found in uh, how do you pronounce that H O X N E Hoxney in Suffolk has a leprosy strain closely related to a type known to affect squirrels. And it's, wow. al- it's already been found in medieval Scandinavian skeletons. So according to Cambridge University's Sarah Inskip, uh, contact with a highly prized squirrel pelt and meat traded by Vikings could have spread the disease. And wow. there's a ooh, nice scary Halloween picture of a, a, le- <laughs> a leprosy riddled skull uh, <laughs> to go with it. So there you go. Um and there's, there's the, the, the article goes on to talk about how this is this is not uh, um, unknown, and that um, the, the particular strain is found in nine banded armadillos in uh, in Florida, and this has caused some some human cases of leprosy. So, wow. the fact that these things could could switch from one to the other, um, and actually, well, linking on trying to keep the the, the tone depressed, <laughs> linking into <laughs> climate change, obviously, as as. The climatic system changes. Species of animals will move into areas where they previously weren't, I think. So, obviously, you can start what's it called vector-borne diseases. You can start have things cropping up where they didn't previously. So, so uh, this is our hope... pitch for the next disaster movie. Leprosy. The leprous, leprous, what do you say, Le- leprotic, Le- leprous, leprous-ridden squirrels. Le- well, we have... We've got a black, what's it, the black squirrel that started to infest the UK. So it was previously the grey squirrel was killing off the red squirrel, wasn't it? Now it's the black squirrel has migrated here. And God knows what that's having. But um, I'm never quite sure if the, the decline of the red squirrel is 
down to the grey squirrel, or whether it's just down to a change in habitat. Because I know the red squirrels thrive as a small island in Pool Harbour called Brown Sea Island, and uh, that's well known as a place where red squirrels are there. Um, oh, and really? In fact, that's where they... they um, there's a recent study demonstrating that leprosy infections in red squirrels um, happens it's in Brown Sea Island. We've covered this mm. before, haven't we, about leprotic squirrels? Yes, yeah. but not the link to human yeah. beings, because I think it did say about squirrels there was an increase in, in leprosy in squirrels in the UK. I think there have been studies recently, yeah, there have been well. an outbreak. But linking it, wow, to, to think that it could actually jump to humans is... Um, well, it just goes to show, you, you nibble away at your own little bit of research and it suddenly has relevance not only across uh, disciplines, but across the, the ages too. So it's, beware uh, of red squirrels, you might catch a <laughs> leprosy. Well, I'll try and uh, make things... Oh God, I'll try. I'll see how I can bring the tone down again, <laughs> but depress everyone. But NASA has found... Well, actually, it's been quite a lot of astronomy talks, but NASA's found 20 allegedly 20 habitable planets that are are nearby so that still oh, means okay. they're kind of light years away so i think you know it's 20 30 light years away so that means at the speed of light it would take us 20 30 years to get there so it, you know under current schemes it would take us you know hundreds of thousands of years to get there uh-huh. but the, but they are you know we're starting to reveal through the kepler uh mission and other missions we're starting to reveal that you know there are planets out there with oxygen, carbon dioxide, water, you know, land. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. I don't think we'll ever visit them, but I think from the point of view of, you know, other life forms evolving on these planets, it is, it's very interesting. We're not that special. Well, we are for us, but uh, the <laughs> Earth, you know, could have, you know, similarities to other planets, which is amazing, really. So am I right in thinking if they detect oxygen on other planets that is a sign of life yes well that that's it's oxygen and methane are meant to be the two indicators because obviously you can have carbon dioxide uh because we've seen it on uh we can see it on mars you can see it on comets but obviously if that carbon dioxide is then has to be broken down into mm. other things you could have, and that uh, and oxygen being a good one because that indicates photosynthesis and methane is a good example because that usually means you've got something uh, like bacteria or something digesting and uh, we've got methanogens in our stomach which are to bring the tone down which is why we pass gas a lot of the time and so yes if we were to to start seeing oxygen (laughs) (laughs) while we start seeing uh, yeah if we can see oxygen that's an amazing uh, you know key to that there could be life on these planets so yeah, fascinating, fascinating. And, and, it, and we've uh, had a, a visit from a body from outside our solar system. I was about to say that as well. Thank you very much, because <laughs> <laughs> I've managed to calculate its speed in metres per second. So for some reason, yeah, there was a, a huge asteroid passed through our, our neighbouring region of space, travelling at 15.8 miles per second, which wow. I don't know why they do it in miles. I don't know, because I... I you know, don't get it. But if you convert this to meters per second, it's twenty five thousand five hundred meters per second, which is well to give you an idea. The the, the speed of sound is three hundred and forty meters per second, so it's about seventy five times the speed of sound. Mm. So th- this thing is traveling 
a colossal speed. And yeah, it's from uh, it's believed to be to have started in the solar system outside of our own, which is fascinating. So they obviously material can transfer between these huge distances. Well, I've just uh, pulled up cosmosmagazine.com and they've got a nice little uh, uh, sort of animation here credited to NASA, which shows the the, uh, the trajectory. So it's coming in sort of more or less perpendicular to, well, not perpendicular, but perpendicular to the plane of the, of the solar system. And then the sun's gravity sort of deflects it out and across. And uh, yeah, so in a, and it's not in a nice elliptical orbit, so it's not going to come back and see us anytime soon. It's just been flung off in a different direction and that looks like it's 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 gonna just head on away now unbelievable there so it, as i say it just shows this material can transfer you know across these vast distances so obviously if you can get this naturally it does mm. then obviously say that obviously human made objects could travel but whether or not we're still going to be kind of obviously the huge distances there was i don't know if you remember obviously talking about these um earth like or habitable planets mm. there was talk to of using lasers to fire micro satellites i think we spoke about it uh, quite a while ago but obviously if you take a very light satellite and use a laser to accelerate it you could get it up to fractions of the speed of light which means you could get to other solar systems that are light years away within human lifetimes wow, so you could yeah. get there in 20 30 years and it could send back information now, obviously this information would take four or five years however long the uh, the light the light distance is but it is possible so we could start exploring with satellites some of these other um, other solar systems. So it's fascinating, really. So is Elon Musk building the, an enormous laser to do this? I, mean, I bet he's. <laughs> well, I bet he's got a team working on it. It wouldn't surprise me. It would not surprise me because he's got his. Uh, I won't call it his uh, BFR rocket, yes. hasn't he? <laughs> uh, which we will not go into. Uh, so he's probably obviously got a, a, a BF laser, and he. <laughs> Um, to to do this, but it, it is the way forward. Um, you know these small. So I believe you know we've started launching microsatellites. I believe there was quite a few. Re- there was a launch recently. So you know, not just for look, looking in our own solar system. This could be a way of that we start exploring further out. So uh, yes, kind of watch this space. So whenever I've sort of talked about, or whenever I've heard talk about in science fiction, particularly about exploring other solar systems, it tends to be obviously talking about manned exploration. But of course, there is going to be a robotic phase first. Mm. Where you send something there, but <clears throat> if you've accelerated it to the speed of light, I guess slowing it down again is going to be. A, I was about to say that's the problem: is is accelerating. You can do it, but and also the, the acceleration period is going to be years. So the the slowing down. So you're actually only going to really be travelling at your optimum speed for quite a small fraction of the entire journey. The mm. most of it is going to be accelerating and decelerating safely. I've I've kind of always said this that I actually don't believe the way. And I've had arguments with people, unsurprising or surprisingly for me, uh, <laughs> about that I don't feel that manned exploration space should be our priority. I believe it should be robotic because obviously a robot you don't have to worry about keeping it alive near cold extremities of space whereas human beings you've got a lot of issues yeah we're not keeping these things we're not uh, really sort of cut out for that sort of environment really yeah. I mean, we've developed, well, we've developed but, in a much uh, uh, well mind you the environment down here is changing like it is perhaps <laughs> well, there the environment is of space are looking increasingly attractive and i think elon musk actually i don't know if we spoke about it on the last time it, it, in between now our pre our you know past a uh, couple of uh 
podcast in that Elon Musk has talked about having a Martian colony that he's going to fund. Yeah, I was up really so, early um, with my baby daughter and just flicking through Twitter, and I, I actually caught that because it was announced at a at a space conference in Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, I was able to watch it live, and and it was really engaging because he's clearly not a comfortable public speaker, but he was, you know, dressed in jeans and a jacket in a sort of Clarkson esque style, and he. <laughs> just presented these beautiful graphics and explained in a kind of uh, a nice uh, modular way how he has this reusable rocket now Falcon 9 you can he's just got a bigger version of it and you you use those to put up and uh, keep the the stages in in orbit and then you build a bigger rocket and you can take it basically it can carry more fuel than it needs so you can use that then to you put one into orbit, you put another one up and transfer the fuel into it. And if you do that, you can go to the moon and back. I think, And, and, and then uh, if you use four of them, you can go to Mars. But you'll then need to generate the fuel when mm. you get to Mars. Um, it's just amazing. He's, you know, he's clearly thought about this. And he points out that if you've got these rockets that are capable of going up and coming back down again, you could get anywhere in the world within half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> That might be a way of putting the, the, the necessary uh, pollutants into the stratosphere. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think he will, I personally suspect he will, it will be. Now, I know we're going completely off topic, but um, I think it'd be interesting politically to see if he's allowed to land on the moon or on Mars. If they would, you know, is he going to be allowed to go there? I don't know if anyone could stop him, frankly. But um, well, I, you know, certainly there, there hasn't been. I don't know that the laws uh, exist or indeed have been tested to say whether he can or can't. I mean, yeah, because there were laws. I think actually put or the UN drew up, you know, certain kind of I don't know, laws or kind of statutes around space exploration, around nations and who was allowed to claim what. But obviously, not belonging to a nation, if he just does this as a private individual, what kind yeah. of constraints or are there around it? It'd be it'd be very interesting. I know it sounds crazy to say. But I'm actually more interested to see how he navigates that than the technical issue because I think the technical issue he could do. Mm. I don't think there's a problem with that. I actually think legally he he may have more of a struggle with it, which is is peculiar, but um, I think equally fascinating. Indeed. Right. Well, I think on that note, we all ought to go away and and think <laughs> think about our <laughs> planet and the potential of moving <laughs> to another one. It's been great speaking to you, Simon. Let's you hope too, we can Chris. do another one before. So that's hopefully. such a huge gap this time. <laughs> I've got more to speak about. <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> Cheers, Simon. Take care. Bye. You have been listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science with Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Tweet us at SL Science.